Here we go. Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Perfect. Hosted by Red Rob. All work and no podcast makes Jack a dull boy. Let's kill the light and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Soma. A pill for your troubles, morality in a bottle. Leap into a new world with Soma. Try the new strawberry ice cream, ice cream flavor. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, writers, actors. Uh, I'm a full-time writer-director for the last, whatever, day or two. Um, and Todd's a full-time producer, musician. We bring all of that vast wealth of knowledge to make fun of movies and tell you how they did them uh, for the worse. No, not at all. Uh, we like to... Look at a film and see where it's working. Maybe sometimes, you know, where we don't think it's working. Not there are very few perfect movies, and that's okay. It's a, I don't think it's a a knock on anyone to point out like, oh, I this thing didn't work for me. I think that's just the nature of art, especially such an art like this. Movies are just so, you know, widespread that we all have an opinion. We all have a thought about oh you know, this didn't click for me or that performance didn't click for me. That dialogue didn't make sense to me or I just didn't follow the story at all. I don't think it's a knock on a storyteller to be like this, you know, didn't quite make sense to me. Um, even though I still love the movie, right? You can do both. You can say, I love a thing with reservations. And I, I, I think that's just part of, you know, appreciating art as much as anything. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of paintings, you know, Da Vinci finished and it was like, eh, I got better in me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, also it's, it's, I don't want to be one of those, those people that sits on your high horse and says, this sucks and whatever. That's not what we do. You know, we, we just like Wes said, talk about what works for us and what doesn't, but also, you know, where we think, you know, did, does this hold up, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and and remember in in a lot of circumstances when a movie is being made, you know, you have to take in, to account like you know i mean honestly what year is it what came before it what came it has come since and and how things have changed i mean you know go, you go back and you listen to the beatles and you can you can pick out stuff where you're thinking that wasn't their best you know i want to hold your hand was great for the time but it's definitely not their best work uh and that's not to say that it wasn't great for its time too mm. so and we like to call those things out as well great point uh, so what are we going to be, uh, adventuring into today, man? Today we are covering Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. So if you haven't seen this film, please pause and go watch it. I believe it is streaming on HBO Go. Uh, so you should be able to see it because we're going to spoil a lot of things. Yes. We're going to take a look at a number of things. Certainly some of the cinematography and directing, um, the way Nolan cheats for speed, I'll define what I mean by that later. Uh, we'll also look at some of the story and writing, a lot, actually, of the story and writing. Batman versus Joker, uh, the philosophical stakes in the film, Joker's tests, uh, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. When the Joker wreaks havoc and chaos on the people of Gotham, Batman must accept one of the greatest philo- psychological and physical tests of his ability to fight injustice. It's directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan, cinematography by Wally Pfister, featuring Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne, 
Heath Ledger as Joker, Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel, Aaron Eckert as Harvey Dent, uh, Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox, and Michael Caine as Alfred. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. And why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. No. No, you. You complete me. You're garbage. You kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, their morals, their code. It's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Where's Dent? You have all these rules, and you think they'll save you. He's in control. I have one rule. Oh, then that's the rule you'll have to break to know the truth. Which is? The only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. And tonight, you're gonna break your one rule. I'm considering it. No, there's only minutes left. You're gonna have to play my little game if you want to save one of them. Yeah. You know, for a while there, I thought you really were a dent. The way you threw yourself after her. <laughs> Look at you go! Does Harvey know about you and his little bunny? Where are they? Killing is making a choice. Where are they? Choose between one life or the other. Your friend, the district attorney. Or his blushing bride to be. <laughs> you have nothing. Nothing to threaten me with. Nothing to do with all of your strength. <laughs> I'm going to tell you where they are. Both of them. And that's the point. You'll have to choose. Oh, buddy. Mm-hmm. All right, Todd. Uh, I don't know. Let it fly, man. Does this, does this, is it great? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you played that clip because uh, that's probably my favorite clip in the entire film, to be honest. Let me start off with the good and then I'll go mm. into... Uh, the the less than good the good for me is that is i mean obviously heath ledger's performance is transcendent and i can only uh, yeah i can only imagine what it's like to play a character like this especially the way the way that it's written too it's not like it's not like keaton's version of of the joker where i mean he's just a bad guy right and i, I know there's more backstory with him and, and everything but in this case we basically have no backstory. He just is this way. And it's fun. It's, it's so brilliant how we get glimpses of a backstory, but we know it's bull baloney because they're different every single time. <laughs> I think that the way that, that 
the Joker is played in this film is probably unlike anything else that we'll ever get. It's just because it was done first, right? And it was done in a way to make us think that we're getting a back, like, like getting explanation for things, but we really aren't. And I think that Alfred puts it perfectly. And this goes into, you know, the excellence in how it's written. And when he says some, some men just want to watch the world burn. Sometimes there is no explanation as to why people are the way they are. And, and we get that through the many stories of why the Joker's face is how it is, right? Why he, the scars are there. Um, we don't, we think we're getting an explanation and, and we can pick whatever we want, but it's not necessarily the case. So he's, he constantly remains a mystery. So anyway, um, I think that it's written really beautifully and 90% of it is, is like the layout of everything, the layout of the characters. I love that Rachel knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman at this point. Um, I love that. Uh, so we're not trying to hide that anymore necessarily. So he can kind of remain in the shadows with everyone else, but with her it's front and center and she's aware of that. That makes the stakes even, even higher, right? When in this scenario that, that follows right after this, um, this scene. And then, I love that, that I love Alfred or not Alfred. I'm sorry. I love Lucius's character as well. Um, when, <laughs> when the guy is trying to blackmail, uh, Bruce Wayne <laughs> and he says, let me get this straight. That whole monologue c- scenario was really great. And it's, it's almost like it, it reminds us that Bruce Wayne has a team. It's not mm-hmm. just one person. And I think that the casting of Morgan Freeman in this role is perfect because he can be this person who's just nonchalant about everything he just has that way about him um and yet he gets stuff done um which is his character and uh, so i i love all of that uh and then and then some and we could talk about all the other stuff like um the batmobile is amazing and and the bat cycle that pops out of it when the batmobile itself is destroyed or whatever it is i i call it the batmobile but it's the bat tank, whatever yes, you, the bat tank, right? Yeah, which like, uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. So anyway, all of that is is really brilliantly done and and incredibly put together. I'm going to go out on a limb here, okay? Though, and say that I do not like Christian Bale as Batman. Ooh, I just don't. I never mm. really have. And then watching this again has completely reminded myself that I just don't, I just don't like it, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and I don't think that I have any other reason because I love Christian Bale. I think he's an uh, yeah. incredible actor. In fact, in 99 out of a hundred films, like <laughs> he's the one I look at, you know, you look <laughs> at Ford V Ferrari, you look at, mm. um, uh, like any other film that he's done, the machinist, um, uh, American psycho, like, He's just brilliant. And the craft that he brings to his performances is unparalleled. It really is. Uh, that being said, like, I cannot get over his voice. His it. voice drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. It's pointless. It's stupid. And and I just don't want to hear him talk. In fact, I feel like I, I honestly feel like 80% of the time he's saying things. It could have been fine if he said nothing. 
Hmm. You know, there are some times where he has to say things and, and, you know, he needs to give some piece of information or ask a question. Hmm. And I get that. But a lot of times it's just pushing everything forward when it doesn't necessarily need to. And that would have been nice to have him say less, even though he doesn't say a whole lot as Batman, to have him say even less as Batman, to be more mysterious to everybody around him, not necessarily to us as a viewer, but to the people he's interacting with. But yeah, I mean, all his conversations with the commissioner and everything, I'm just like, God, I I can't take it. It drives me crazy. And it takes me out of it completely. Hmm. Um, uh, So that band, and then also some of the dialogue feels a little too exposition-y and where you're giving too much to me and I don't, it it feels dated. That's how it feels. Hmm. Some of the dialogue feels dated because it feels like I'm being given something that I kind of already know. And I'm I'm trying, I also tried to, while I was watching it, I tried to take myself out of, I already know the story and I already know what's going to happen and just watching it for, as a, as a film. And even then I just feel like you didn't need to put that in there. You didn't need to explain that to me or say that this, this happened before. And so now this, like, uh, in a in a film like this, that's a, a trilogy. If you haven't seen the first one and you're watching the second one and you miss stuff, go watch the first one. Don't give me the backstory of the first one so that now I'm up to speed. Leave those people behind. Those people are not the reason you're making the second one, right? So um, that's in a nutshell what I'll say is that mm. I think the Joker performance is incredible. I think that the writing is ninety percent amazing the story backstories they've given to everybody the purposes or lack thereof they've given to people are incredible the development of the characters are really amazing but the writing in some places seems very dated it completely takes me out of it and bale is batman i've never been a big fan and i especially am not now after re-watching again so i'm going to lightly disagree great um, oh i like it <laughs> i personally the, he's my favorite batman personally mm. I am good to go with the voice. I disagree in the sense of, I don't think it's pointless. I think it is pointed um, to do the whole disguise your voice thing. Because to me, even, even having his chin exposed to me is like, I would be more okay with you pointing out like, that's dumb, right? Because if you're in a universe where you're a mass vigilante, you should be trying to disguise your voice around the people you see, you know, mm-hmm. in your non whatever disguised life. And so to me, it makes some sense that he's trying to disguise his voice. It doesn't make sense to me in other films when he doesn't, I'm like, I know we, we all just, you know, suspend our disbelief, but anyway, like there's, there is one line in this film where I'm just like, it doesn't work. Uh, which is at the very end when he's trying to get out that gobbledygook uh, dialogue of, uh, either, you know, die a hero or live uh, live long enough to see yourself become a villain. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's I just see much. the college humor uh, version of this. Oh, I haven't seen that, but um, Oh dude, it's so good. But that's that's too much. That's that's a that's a dialogue problem. I don't blame him. He got painted into a corner and it's just like I don't know how to get out of this room. Like I'm I'm painted in the corner. Um and so, you know, apologies to Christian Bale for that. Uh but I at the same time, I always have understood why people hate the voice, like, uh, because, you know, it does, it, it is unique <laughs> in its, uh, in its approach. And it's a lot. It is a lot. I think if I was going to harp on the dialogue, though, in terms of 
audio quality, the the rest of the film, everyone else talking could have used a little more brightening. Like it, it can be a little hard to parse some of the dialogue and this has become a Nolan staple at this point. Um, and I don't think it pays dividends to do that in this particular film, especially when you start thinking about why. And so I will go right into the note that I had about cheating for speed. Like this is a directing choice, right? One of the things with this film is that it's a breathless film. There's a lot of moving parts happening. And so you're having to find ways to keep momentum because it's paramount to keep the runtime down um, and to keep everything kind of popping along. If you spend too much time in one scene, especially early in the film, like I went and read the first, I don't know, 30, 40 pages of the screenplay, just curious to see how it looked on the, on the page. And man, that's a monster to me. Like each paragraph is just packed with a thousand things and a lot of, I don't know, maybe a, a half the stuff doesn't really make it onto the screen and with the same level of impact that it has in the script itself. Just as a, for example, when we first meet Batman, he bends the barrel of the gun, right? With his, with his hand. I remember watching that this time and I was like, wait, that's pretty outrageous. And then it doesn't really get explained in the, in the script. That's like the first thing they point out is uh, this thing he has under his hand uh, and they call it a mangle. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay. And then when I rewatched the film afterwards, uh, because the mangle is the same thing that he hooks into the van, right? And starts ripping it open before uh, he gets tossed off or he tosses himself off to avoid hitting the pillar. Um, in the screenplay, it's like screamed at you basically, like the mangle this, the mangle that. Uh, but in the film, there's like a 12 frame cut that you see a close up of this gadget underneath his arm. It doesn't really explain how it allowed him to do the barrel bending or any of that. It's just like he has a gadget. Um, and I'm like, well, yeah, he's Batman. <laughs> That's all he does is have gadgets. Like this gadget doesn't mean anything to me visually. Um, and so there's just all kinds of little things happening in the screenplay. But in order to keep the momentum and the runtime, you know, flowing, uh, you really have to find little ways of cutting out things that you don't really need, even though if you had the extra, whatever, 10, 15 minutes, you might do all these little things. And just as a, again, a couple of quick asides, like Bruce, uh, whenever he talks to Lucius, he hands him uh, these drawings of the new bat suit. We don't actually see him hand him the drawings. Like this is a, probably a two second cut that they could have inserted to be like, you know, he pulls out, you know, these drawings of a new bat suit and like, here's instead it's Lucius making a comment like, yeah, three pieces kind of nineties. And he's like, looks down and he just has them in his hands already. Uh, and so that's just a very small cheat. And this film is filled with these little kind of things that they don't show you just to keep it going. Another weird one that I, is kind of dicey is when Joker early on dispatches the gangster, right? That's the first story he tells about his dad. Why so serious? And he's got the knife inside the gangster's uh, mouth and he's about to cut his mouth open and give him a permanent smile. And then we just kind of cut and he, he just falls down dead and it doesn't make any sense, right? Cause you're not going to kill someone with the blade in their mouth. Like you're going to very, you know, much scar them for the rest of their life. Uh, but it's not a death blow. And so they never really let that pay off. They just kind of let him die. And you're just like, okay, he's dead. And we all move, move on. And 
I think we're okay with that. It's a little bumpy, but we're still so invested in the Joker that we don't, we're like, okay, we get it. And it's a weird thing to have the entire audience just kind of say, okay, yeah, we get it. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it works. It works well enough anyway, um, to, to keep everything moving. Um, but to your point, and this goes back to cheating for speed, there is so much more on the nose dialogue, expositiony things to help keep things moving that they do here. And for a number of reasons, it also is because this is a mainstream pop film. So the audience is bigger and more general. Like you can't go a little bit more intimate and, and indie. Um, you have so many moving parts. You kind of have to repeat yourself a number of ways and a number of times and because you, you trust the audience a little less because this is the audience that shows up, you know, Friday night, Saturday night is only kind of half paying attention. They're eating popcorn, checking their phones. <laughs> like you just trust the audience a lot less than you would, uh, an audience like us into, you know, anyone who's listening to us. Um, we're going to be a little bit sharper and thinking and engaging with the film a lot more. And so there's so many things like I, I'm not going to hammer this, you know, to death, but stuff like, the, the coin flipping thing, right? Uh, they keep making it a point of conversation. Um, and you probably could have gotten away with saying that once, right? You shouldn't leave something like that up to chance. And they say it like four times throughout the film and it just keeps getting pointed out. And, you know, Harvey keeps kind of smirking like I'm not. Um, and then finally, Rachel says it again as he's getting hauled off before the big uh, showdown. And he's like, I'm not. And slams on his face and she looks at the coin and she repeats a line that he says earlier in the film, right? You make your own luck. Um, it's like, okay, yeah, we get it. It was a two double headed coin, blah, blah, blah. But it's that kind of thing that I think a normal Nolan approach would be like, no, nah, I'm going to like interstellar isn't doing this to you. <laughs> like yeah. Inception isn't even doing this to you, despite how much bigger inception is conceptually. It, they're still more efficient in their exposition, but with the Batman, you do have to, you know, be like, okay, we're going to belabor things a lot more than I would really like to because I have a studio executive uh, who's going to be watching this film, checking his phone, <laughs> and I need to make sure he gets it too. And same thing, like the the lower fifth thing, whenever that that big showdown starts, right? The uh, the flames or whatever blocking off their their avenue, their path. And the guy says, take lower fifth, take lower fifth, right? We cut to this other truck and it's the guy kind of freaking out. Lower fifth will be like turkeys on Thanksgiving down there, you know, just to make sure we get there's danger down there. Nothing good happens on lower fifth uh, just so that no one gets bumped off. But even with that sequence, I think there's still he still leaves room for thinking on the audience's part, like in terms of the whole plan is never really spelled out, even after you know, we get through the end of it when we reveal that, you know, Gordon is still alive. Like they never really spell out what the exact plan was. And so I still appreciate he found ways to leave our imagination um, blanks to fill in. And so like it, it all makes sense. I think that whole plan makes really good sense in, in, in hindsight, like 90%. There's probably like a little wiggle room in there. Be like, wait, yeah. Uh, but for the most part, right. Uh, and if, so if you watch that sequence, you know, with the understanding that George Gordon is driving, you start to see some of the little things that they did uh, that they had discussed and worked out in advance um, that maybe, you know, freak you out or you don't even think about, you know, just watching. 
another little thing mm-hmm. that they do early in the film. Uh, that big gangster meeting that Joker interrupts, right? And Lau's on TV. They have Joker predict Batman grabbing Lau and making him talk, right? This is a hidden exposition. It's kind of clever um, because it's this hidden, redundant uh, messaging of what is going to happen and why it's happening. It's just there to make sure the audience doesn't get lost on a pretty, you know, critical plot point. He's Lau a squealer. Is, yeah, I know a squealer I know a when squealer. I see one. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. It's just a very subtle reinforcement of not only that, of what that whole beat later on is, because he does, right? There's a whole segment, whatever, 10-minute segment of uh, Bruce Wayne going to Hong Kong, Kidnapping this guy, he builds a cover story for the, the event, the adventure, gets the guy, gets him to talk. That's all really important. And it's also subtly reinforcing the importance of Harvey Dent because without a good DA, the legal system is useless. Um, and so he's trying to find ways to make sure this is a big, complicated moving piece for, you know, a, a pop film. And so he does have to, I think he felt compelled anyway, uh, to make sure a Batman, you know, normie walking in, uh, can walk away with all the highlights and yet, well, yeah, please. Well, and how, and how brilliant is that to give that line to Joker? Because, because now we see Joker as when we see that happen, we see Joker as smart, not just a crazy guy that just wants to see the world burn. But like this guy has stuff figured out. He knows people. He understands what motivates people, you know, whether that's cops or Batman or or whomever or gangsters. Right. And so to give him that line to call that out, you know, just and throughout this movie, he does such a brilliant job of giving insight to Joker to say as dialogue. Right. And and so when Joker says these things, we're like, oh, so then we start I like almost identifying with him a little bit. You know, they'll cast you aside like lepers and, and like he's not wrong. They do look at him as a freak. The only reason why Batman is in there is because of Gordon. Everybody else like hates Batman and like thinks he's a vigilante and, and wants to see him burn. And everybody else thinks that. But Gordon is the only one who's like, no, 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 let him. He's he's under control, you know, so. I love it. Um, yeah. yeah. And so let's discuss that because this is going to get into the stuff that I love about this film. Why it's my personal favorite Batman is because there's so much philosophically happening in this movie, way more than any superhero movie has a right to be thinking about discussing, let alone executing to, I think perfection. Like it's, it's really good. And this will come back to Joker's backstory here in a little bit, if I can remember it. Um, but the first thing that, you know, I, that jumps out at me is Joker's tests. He has tests galore throughout the entire film. Even the opening, the opening heist, right. Is kind of this test that he puts his uh, men through, right? Because if any one of them decides to not be a greedy piece of shit, he loses. But that's the whole point is he's going to get everyone to kill everyone. And that's a a selfish greed thing, right? We're not going to share, right? And he understands very well uh, the the mentality of these kind of men and he's going to use it against them. And that's that's the important part too is he's – and it it 
reinforces exactly what you're saying. Like Joker is specific in his, you know, psychological approaches with everyone. He doesn't blanket the, everybody with the same approach. And so he's like, he's, he knows which buttons to push with which person. And I think that's really cool. So every test, I think, uh, begins to hint at that and making people reveal themselves, who they truly are and what they truly value. And so another test is the three henchmen after he kills the, the gangster, the mob bot. I, I don't know if that was a mob guy or what, but, uh, the, he has the, he breaks the pull cue, right? Hmm. And he says, uh, you know, luckily we, we have an opening. Um, unfortunately there's only one spot and we're going to have tryouts, make it fast. Right. And he drops, I love how he just kind of weighs which one is better for killing <laughs> like of the, yeah. of the broken pull cue. Um, and he drops it. Right. And so now he's going to have these three guys who are presumably friends, you know, kill each other for survival. And then, you know, it, even the, the mob itself, right. He's getting them to y'all can go to jail and lose all your money or you can pay me half. Right. And he doesn't want the money. He burns the money. It was never about the money. It was about uh, making, sending a message. Right. Is what he says. And it's funny because that line to when he says it, you could apply it to almost everyone in the movie. He's sending a message to literally everyone. Yes. Batman. Yes. The, the police, the mayor, and including all you gangsters, like uh, everyone's about to get a message and watch all this money burn. And Harvey or Rachel, right? That's a whole big philosophical test. That's a it's a test specifically for Batman um, to to make a choice, right? And I think uh, I'll come back to that. My notes are scrambled. I was right up to the deadline, man. I was Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And so the another big test, of course, is the hospital, right? I can blow up a hospital or citizens of Gotham. You can kill Reese, this guy who's about to expose my who I'm claiming is my arch enemy, right? He doesn't want to kill him. What would he do without him? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's it's a beautiful test, right? Because now we get to see if normal people will murder, right? And they try. So maybe Joker's right about mankind? And right afterwards, Joker goes and talks to Denton. I love love that first line he says he pulls his mask off he sits he says hi it's <laughs> it kind of it shy personal isn't this awkward oh <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great delivery of yeah. one two letter word like it's just yeah oh filled filled with so much context and character um i just best line in any batman film ever hands down for me <laughs> <laughs> and so but what does he do he hands harvey dent a gun this is the guy who wants to kill him and he hands him a gun joker gets harvey dent to become evil because he just needed the right push is what he says at the end of the film right it's like gravity madness is like gravity but how does he do it what push is he giving him what he tells harvey dent is the thing about chaos is it's fair. And this is appealing to Harvey Dent's sense of justice and the face of being blown apart and losing Rachel, pun intended. And it's just a, a beautiful, like philosophical approach to a villain. Like this guy, he is so well-written. Yes. Heath Ledger deserves all the credit in the world for bringing this character to life. No question. Um, but 
it wouldn't be as good if he didn't have as much behind it. Like the writing behind the Joker is the one of the greatest villains written of all time. Like we could sit here and probably count on one hand who would be in company with him. This version of the Joker, not just the Joker itself, this version of the Joker, mm-hmm. because all of it is meant to test the nature of man. He's deeply invested in proving that mankind has fallen and that social constructs are a ruse. Um, and I think this is why we should never find out his backstory. This version of the Joker should never have a backstory because it, it's beside the point. The point is when crazy chaotic stuff happens in our lives, is that going to be enough to push us over the edge? And so if we were to understand why the Joker is doing what he's doing, we can suddenly start to rationalize, you know, everything away. Well, what you really need to do to solve this problem is X, Y, or Z. You can't, it's, even if you know, it doesn't excuse what's happened and the impact it's going to have on you. And I think the one thing you could apply for, you, you kind of referenced uh, contextualizing film earlier. And one of the, the things that I think can, I'm not saying it's an absolute truth, but I, I think it's more than a coincidence. There's so many conversations around vigilantes. Um, and this is one of my favorite the other favorite aspect of this film is that it's that Batman is looking to be replaced. You don't find this in other superhero films. They're always, you know, vigilant and they never think about what is my end game? What's my goal here? Batman, Bruce Wayne's goal has always been to restore law and order and justice and peace uh, into society. It was never just to, I'm, I'm here to be vengeance. It was always, how can I get society back on its feet again? What can I do in the meantime? How can I clean up this city? Uh, Because anything that results in the necessity of me staying around forever is failed. That's a failed philosophy. That's a bad goal. And his goal in this film is how can I get out of the mix? How can I get out of the workflow? Um, And Harvey Dent becomes this, this goal. Uh, And it's so beautiful. And they had this conversation early in the film and let's play it. It's the dinner table whenever Harvey, Rachel, Bruce, and the, the prima ballerina uh, yeah. get into a Phyllis. I love that it's this artist. It's a ballerina. And she's taking it to these two uh, district attorneys. How could you want to raise children in a city like this? Well, I, I was raised here. I turned out okay. Is Wayne Manor in the city limits? <laughs> the Palisades? Sure. You know, as our new DA, you might want to figure out... Uh, where your jurisdiction ends. I'm talking about the kind of city that idolizes a masked vigilante. Gotham City is proud of an ordinary citizen standing up for what's right. Gotham needs heroes like you, elected officials, not a man who thinks he is above exactly. the law. Exactly. Who appointed the Batman? We did. All of us who stood by and let scum take control of our city. But this is a democracy, Harvey. When their enemies were at the gates, the Romans would suspend democracy and appoint one man to protect the city. It wasn't considered an honor. It was considered a public service. Harvey, the last man that they appointed to protect the Republic was named Caesar, and he never gave up his power. Okay, fine. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Look, whoever the Batman is, he doesn't want to do this for the rest of his life. How could he? Batman is looking for someone to take up his mantle. Someone like you, Mr. Dent? Maybe. If I'm up to it. I love that. I love that. This movie is exploring something that I'm not aware of any other superhero movie exploring, which is the nature of power, 
the nature of justice and the role. Now there are other films like Spider-Man, I think does a light handed job of saying the mass vigilante is this right or wrong that someone is out there taking justice into their own hands, but not to this extent because the conversation never gets to what is the role of Batman ultimately and what's the goal and how do we figure out how to replace Batman. But I love just that simple conversation is, is doing a lot because it's asking those questions and then also giving the danger, the warning signs of what it means to take justice into your own hands and to appoint someone as an arbiter of morality, right? Because what happens if someone takes all that power and then never gives it back. And that conversation I find to be also illuminating of the era, the context of the era, because you start to factor in that this is all taking place in a post 9-11 era, right? And I think there's some commentary that he's lacing in there without ever, ever touching, you know, 9-11 or any of the, the actual symbols. Instead, he's looking at some of the ways the government's operating um, and there's some light handed and my God, what a light touch um, to do it so seamlessly without violating the audience because a lot of people watching Batman are, you know, especially in this era, probably going to be very pro war on terror, war on whatever, whatever it takes. Right. And Gotham uh, is New York. Gotham is New York. Great, 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 great point. And so thinking about it in those terms, right. America's reeling from seemingly chaotic terrorism. Right. And so then we have a reaction, right? Surveillance overreach, right? The Patriot Act, which I would say is symbolized heavily and the, and the quote unquote, according to Bruce, government intel communications project, right? This is a cell phone spy mapping tech that Lucius makes and is abused by Bruce. Lucius makes it for one specific thing. And Bruce says, oh, I can use that in a much bigger, grandiose way. And when Lucius finds that out, I love that he's the conscience um, because Alfred can't be the conscience. Alfred is like a, a warning track that you're about to hit the wall, you know, to mix a bunch of metaphors in here. But, but Lucius is the one who's like, no, I'm walking away if you don't shut this down. And that's what you need, right? You need a conscience. Uh, and then Dent, maybe, and this, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I have this all mapped perfectly, but I think Dent might represent the American psyche, right? A strong sense of justice. That's our culture. Our culture has a very strong sense of justice and it's just destroyed by one evil act, right? Uh, perhaps it's also a warning on the vigilante justice methodology, philosophy, right? Because you have two vigilantes now. You have Batman and you have uh, Two-Face and not everyone has the same rules. The rules that Batman had for himself, Harvey Dent did not have. He was letting his whims be dictated by the flip of a coin, right? And so vigilanteism is absolutely not the solution to righting wrongs. Um, and then maybe Batman is our justice system itself, right? Fighting to not break its moral code uh, and debating like, at what point do I, you know, let go of the power that I've built for myself? And I love that he hands that right back over to Lucius, right? Hey, maybe I don't know what Lucius would represent necessarily. Maybe the, uh, the just the conscience of America, but it's fascinating to start applying some of these layers onto the film because it help it it holds up really well to it. And I think it's not coincidental. Um, Nolan seems to me the type of philosopher that likes to 
think about the the role of society combined with government and power uh a lot of his films kind of deal with that in so many different ways uh it's it's rarely left out of his thinking whenever he's writing these big films um and i think that's really really cool yeah and so and, and again i think that's why it's really important that joker doesn't have a backstory because if you start to fill in his backstory then if you were to sit in here and start to paint him as you know some kind of bin laden figure um or someone else like it it makes it too specific and personal and you might start to say um well one it might pull you out of the story um but two it might start to excuse some of the behaviors that you're seeing joker do um and it's just i think the most important aspect is does it matter does it matter the reasoning sometimes no your reaction your response to you know, an evil action, an evil deed has nothing to do with what propelled it in the first place. Your reaction still needs to be based on morality and principles that you hold dear and that you say is uh, uh, to be implemented in your worldview. Uh, Because if you throw those away for any reason, then what is the difference between you and Joker? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it almost excuses it asks for an excuse if you know his real his real backstory and that's just not that's not who he is because it doesn't matter it's like the you know what joker reminds me of in this film is the feeling you have on a two-way highway two-lane highway of every every now and then you have this thought of i could just veer over into this oncoming traffic and not that you'd ever do it but it's that it's that moment it's that initial just thought that pops into your head that synapse that connects with another synapse that says i could create anarchy um uh, but manifested in an actual full <laughs> full-fledged human being right um uh that's the best way i could describe it but that's that's how it feels but i've never seen an actual an actual actor disappear as well as i did in this and it doesn't it honestly doesn't matter that he has makeup on it doesn't matter that he has scars. If it were actual Heath Ledger sitting there without makeup on, just looking at you in the camera, giving the same performance. In fact, I, I think I've seen a deep fake of that <sighs> wow. where someone actually put Heath Ledger's face on his face as Joker without the makeup or whatever. And it, you still are blown away about how absent he looks, even in a deep fake. It's crazy. I'll try to dig that up and and find it and send it to you. But it's just I've never seen an actor transcend himself or herself so much that they completely disappear to the point where they're unrecognizable in that regard. So I I, and also I just want to say I I, I totally agree about all that. And I think it's super insightful what you said about what you've been saying about everything about like the writing and the, the additional layers that are put on. And, and like I said, at the beginning of this um, you know, the time that this was made post nine 11, not that post nine 11, let's be honest, just, just a few years and the correlation with um, you know, touching on a few, a few things that I think that everybody was thinking at the time uh, the Patriot act being a very big one, uh, but just touching on it, like, you know, and then, and being but being conscious that this is Gotham is very much like New York and everybody's you say Gotham, but you think New York, right? Like 
everything that you see is this, <laughs> yeah. these big, huge buildings and concrete everywhere and, and which sounds like every city, but then you look at the skate, the, the, you know, like the, um, the big wides that they have and all the bridges and the water around it. You're, it's obviously New York, New York. <laughs> so, New York. um, so yeah, no, very insight, insightful, man. I agree. Really cool stuff. And lastly, cinematography, I thought was, um, interesting. The, now I'm not going to go into all of it. I think most Nolan films kind of use a lot of the same ideas. Not all of them. I think Tenet stands apart uh, pretty well. And Oppenheimer looks like it's going to stand apart. And I think it's the difference between now that I'm thinking about it, Wally Pfister and getting a new cinematographer, because from interstellar on it's, it's gotten more specific. It's gotten more specific to the stories that he's telling um, than when he was working with Wally Pfister. Um, and Wally Pfister is like amazing. Don't get me wrong. He's, he's a legend. Uh, but Hoyt Van Hoedema came in and suddenly, you know, Interstellar looks like Interstellar. Dunkirk looks like Dunkirk. Um, and Tenet is its own thing, right? The coloring, the contrast is its own thing. Whereas virtually every film from whatever Batman begins through dark Knight rises all have the same kind of approach, texture, color. Uh, it all feels very much kind of in the same neighborhood. You know, I would say did Wally do all three of them. Uh, yeah. And I want to say he also probably did prestige and inception. Um, mm. yeah. So they all feel like birds of a feather to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they all, they all look fine. They look good. Like I, I have nothing against them. I just like, a really specific look for a specific film um, that's attractive to me for whatever reason. Yeah. But all that stuff aside, there's some, a couple little small things that they do. Well, one small thing and one obvious big thing. The small thing was when Harvey tips over, like he's tied, right there. He's surrounded by all the gas and he tips over the gas drum and falls on the floor and he's his face is pressed to the floor, right? Uh, the gas starts to spill over. And there's this very small, slight rotation that happens as we're watching his face pressed on the floor where the camera rotates uh, clockwise, which makes the floor kind of rise a little bit above his head. And it's like it's pressing him, you know, and it's so cool because otherwise, if you go the other direction, it might feel like he's free and that he could maybe you know, get up off the floor or raise his face off the gas, but rotating it the other way, pressing the floor into him and it's like, it's crushing him. Then suddenly it feels inescapable. And we're just like, Oh God, like that's, I know where this is headed. If you that's know such a great point. Cause that moment, I, I felt that too. I felt like, Oh, just pick your head up, pick your head up. But because the camera tilted, I felt less like he could. Yeah. You know, I felt the chair on top of him pushing him down. I felt like, yeah, that, I didn't even notice that. That's a great point. So good. Joker dangling at the end. I think we've all noticed the camera rotating, right? To, to make him right side up. And on the one hand, like it's easier to orient the audience in order to intercut dialogue. If you're going to be cutting between him and Bruce or Batman, like it could probably become a little disorienting that you're trying to orient in your mind, these two characters. So that helps that that's a, that's a problem solve. Um, but of course more, you know, uh, emblematically, it reflects his worldview versus Batman's, right? They're opposites in every way. And Joker, being an agent of chaos, uh, lives upside down. And that, to him, is right side up. And so there's that, right? Um, because 
philosophically joker has no rules and does not believe in humanity and he's looking for ways to prove his point but this reflects the worldview versus batman's and that they're opposites in every way right because philosophically batman like does have rules he does have constraints um even if it's just the one thing because we see him do some pretty rough stuff i love that he breaks that guy's legs that little bit of dialogue you should drop him high enough to kill him this isn't gonna kill me i'm counting on it you know boom and that hurts like just watching that clip is painful but batman in other ways they're complete opposites batman is a billionaire right looks for ways to earn more money and invest it right joker burns his he burns a whole stack of it. He doesn't care about money whatsoever. Batman operates in the dark, right? Uh, Joker operates in broad daylight. Batman is black and shadowy wardrobe and operates in the shadows. Joker is bright, flashy, hides with makeup instead of a cowl. Uh, in just every single way, these uh, they are just polar opposites of each other. And it's just heightened with the, the, the framing and the cinematography. It's just genius. I'm the writing in this movie really is astounding. Like it's just absolutely perfect in order to make sure everyone is, you know, being pressed to the maximum Um, because every test that Joker puts everyone through uh, is specific, right? Whether it's making Batman break his one rule, right? Racing to choose, right? That's what he says in the clip that we played at the start. You can, you can choose like, letting someone die is still breaking your rule you have to choose who's going to die and who's going to live you have to choose the life that you want which is ironic because he wants the life with rachel but he also can't have it without harvey therefore he has to save harvey if he's to have any chance of actually helping uh, uh, gotham that's his ultimate goal um it's not just to stop being batman it's to make sure gotham gets on its feet uh, and and Harvey is his route to a better Gotham. Um, I'm really and- glad you pointed that out because I think a lot of people have asked that question, including myself when I first saw it, which is why did he go to Dent? You know, why not go to Rachel if he knows he can save her? You know, but it's it defeats the purpose, right? If 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 he can't get to Dent, then it doesn't it it really doesn't matter, honestly, because there's nobody else. He can't be with Rachel either way. It's still selfish, and I think that's what joker was trying to get him to admit i think joker wanted him to save rachel Mm -hmm. because then it reinforces the idea that batman wants to be batman Mm -hmm. he likes the power he wants to hold on to the power um and he just enjoys you know being a vigilante um instead of what he's representing of change in gotham and so i think in every every time he gets tested by joker he wins even whenever he does lose um, I just wish I just wish in that because I couldn't agree more about the writing. I do wish that it could have been. I just I just want I only wanted any kind of exposition to be given by the Joker. Yeah. And Heath Ledger. <laughs> Anything else that anybody gives me. I'm just like, I don't believe you. I'm sorry. I don't believe yeah. you, including Maggie Gyllenhaal. I'm just like, I don't care. I don't care what you're saying. I just want to hear the Joker's talk for two and a half hours. Uh, I One thing I did want to point out that that. Uh, I'm surprised that you haven't yet, but when I say it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, unless you already knew it or already pointed that out. In the original Batman, well, not the original, the Michael Keaton Batman, how does the Joker die? Oh, uh, oh, he falls. He falls. Yeah. And not saved by Batman. Oh, I think this was an homage to that. 
and a a concrete way to say this that Batman will not be be beaten to to kill. He's going to save everyone, including the Joker, as opposed to the original Keaton one. I say the original just because Keaton is like the best man. He's yeah. he's just awesome. He's just because that it, like you know Joker does die by falling um, at the end, and at the end he's laughing with the the thing in his pocket, the laugh track in his pocket. And you can hear Heath Ledger laughing, the Joker laughing as he's falling. Like, this is what I wanted. Da, 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 da. And then Batman actually saves him as opposed to in the first one. I thought that was just an amazingly well thought out, brilliant ending to their relationship there. Absolutely. Because Joker is trying to get him to kill him, right? That's another yeah. test is he yeah. stands out and open in the street, clears the lane, right? And he's just sitting there. Come on, come on. Um, because he's willing to die to prove his point. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make Batman uh, become evil, to push him over the ledge. Um, there is there is no no sacrifice he won't make, whether yep. that's boatfuls of people or himself. Like, yep. uh, and so yeah, you're you're right. Like him falling is happiness of yes, I win. Mm-hmm. he's dying and he's thinking he's that he wins he's like yeah <laughs> this is what I, the culmination of everything i've done yeah. and then no he's like i think at some point maybe i'm wrong i think he says aw at some point oh, when, really? well i i want to say i heard that when when he gets his foot gets caught by the 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 grappling hook or whatever oh that's so uh good. yeah so great and then did ledger die before this film was done i think it may have been released before um or after after he passed okay Um, but i just wonder because we just end with joker just it's just we're done with joker yeah you know and i yeah it sucks uh he also did go to make another film i think some of the early thoughts were he this film pushed him over the edge and like he uh, took his own life i don't think that i this is not normally the kind of stuff I get too deep into in terms of just my personal interest. Um, I think it was maybe an accidental overdose of sleeping pills. I don't know that there's a lot of reason to suspect otherwise. Yeah. It sucks that so much. I just mean like, like it doesn't feel like an ending to Joker. Yeah. And so I wonder like, you know, did they, did they not, were they not able to film that, you know, because it doesn't feel like something that Nolan would, Te- technically do you know i agree i think the intention if if you know we can do some conjecturing here yeah um is he was supposed to come back for the dark knight rises um is what oh i would suspect like can you imagine i think you're right him and bane oh coming together oh my god like, that's what the, a film that would have been that would have been amazing um instead we got what we got and so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that that's kind of my headspace of like the intention was of course not to let him go like this is one of the best characters ever mm-hmm. uh let's let's push it to the edge okay. um yeah and they so, just left it as is like yeah. okay yeah yeah for sure um yeah i think that's basically all i got i love it for all those reasons i love heath ledger just going all out and what was interesting reading the script is there's not that much for him to work with. Like just give him the dialogue. There, there's nothing That's on beautiful. the page that says play it this way. You know, there's nothing predictive of what he ledger does. Um, it, the, the most I think they really give you is he's wearing makeup that covers the scars. Like that's who was, was, was Jack Nicholas, the last Joker, the previous before one. Yeah. Him? 
Yeah, but but there was nobody between Nicholas mm-hmm. and No. So he had he he could honestly, he had a full canvas to paint with. Yeah. He could have done like literally anything because Nicholas was like or Nich- Nicholson, Nicholson, sorry. Yeah, I, I get the golfer mixed up <laughs> all the time. Every time. I used to play every golf. Every time. <laughs> every time. I will always say it wrong. Um, Nicholson was was very specific. So Ledger could have done anything. I think that, w- that was probably a lot of fun for him, I feel like, at the beginning of like saying, oh, okay, I could give this, I could, this guy could be like this. And, and now no one can do the laugh. Yeah. You know, you know, he was the one like he would. That was it because Nicholson never really. I mean, he had a laugh. Yeah, but it it was I don't know. It, it was still yeah. Nicholson. It still felt Jack. Yes, um, it did. It did. And so anyway, and it was great for its time. Like I was a kid when I watched that and oh, just yeah. fell in love with Batman for sure. But oh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I was just I was just curious. Uh, yeah. In that regard. So, yeah. OK, nice. Um. Yeah, I think that's all I got, man. Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant film. Uh, the writing was fantastic. Um, I just wanted more. I wanted even more Joker, and I still am not a, a Bale as Batman fan. I'm just not. I'm just not. What did you think of the music, the use of music, um, the tone, right? The shepherd tone uh, to create tension seemed yeah. to be laced throughout. Um, did anything pop out to you in regards to sound design or music? Uh, I'm no. And that's why I loved it. Ah. You, you know what I mean? Like for, yeah. for a film like, like inception or, um, interstellar, you know, other, other, um, Nolan films that are, you know, very, I don't know. They're driven by the, by the music. Like that is, it's a, it's a thing that they hearken back to. Yeah. I don't think that this film needed that. I think it would have taken me out of there's just there's so many things that are trying to be said at the same time. Then in the like the line that um that you talked about earlier where the Joker's talking to to Dent and in the in the hospital, you know, the thing about fear is it's fair. I don't want to be thinking about Sonic anything Sonic around me. I don't want to be thinking about music or 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 like, oh, I love this sound or whatever. It's not like the docking scene of Interstellar where mm. we have no dialogue essentially. We just have this stressful moment like i need to be able to hear all the words that are said because the for the first two or three times i saw this film i thought he said fear i didn't think he said fair which means nothing it's like that doesn't make sense you know and so i didn't really get it uh so i need to be able to hear everything and not be thinking about other other things like music so I, i think the fact that i didn't hear that i didn't hear it like too much you know music was a, a good thing I thought, but I thought it was perfectly placed. I thought this, the stressful moments were brought up like really well. And some of the clips you played too were, it was perfect, you know, really so well good. placed. So good. I love it. I love the the philosophical underpinnings of it doesn't matter why Joker's doing what he's doing. The ultimate question is whether or not any of it would make it right to suspend law mm-hmm. in order to accomplish your your goal does breaking yeah. the law as the lawgiver make it right under any circumstance because if it doesn't make it right under the worst imaginable nonsensical chaotic circumstances then there's never going to be a time that it makes sense to suspend um habeas corpus or uh the you know justice 
in order to accomplish getting the bad guy, so to speak. And so I love this whole approach, this philosophy blown right into the heart of a superhero film. Bravo. Well done. I am, I'm in love. <laughs> nice. nice. What, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Um, only because it's the most recent film I saw in a theater and I had a great time. I'm going to recommend the Mario brothers movie. Uh, had a great time seeing it. And especially with my kids, if you have kids, take them to go see it. Uh, especially if you're in your thirties or forties and you grew up playing Nintendo, it's, it's fine. Nice. I similar, I'm going to recommend the new Dungeons and Dragons movie, Honor Among Thieves. Nice. I freaking loved it. Uh, if you've seen the preview and you're like, that looks terrible. That's it's to me the perfect trailer because it saves all the good stuff for the movie. It's a complete bait and switch. Well, maybe not a complete. It is a silly movie. Don't get me wrong. It's lighthearted. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it never makes fun of itself. And I think that's a big distinction. Like uh, our friend Joe House uh, said it very well, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something along those lines of it. It does a good job of having fun with it, with its ideas of being a D&D movie um, without ever becoming a mockery of the people that love it. And so that's a fine line to walk because you mean Dungeons and Dragons are, are nothing if not good for making fun of. Um, did you, so, did you, do you need to have played it? Zero. Like okay. if you have, cool. you'll, you'll enjoy it uh, for reasons that I, I, I don't know if I've ever played proper D and grew up playing some RPG stuff, uh, mm -hmm. but I don't think it was ever actual Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and we were never very good. We told all the stories, but this to me is also like the perfect campaign because it's full of like silly jokes that land more often than you would expect. Uh, yeah. Some good cameos, really fun. It's just a fun movie. If you go in and say, this will be fun. Like you're going to have a great time um, okay. because it's, it's silly. It's fun. It's uh, it's inventive. And it's the same guys. Oh my gosh. The same guys behind my favorite Spider-Man movie, which is homecoming. Nice. And they did not do the following two films, um, uh, Spider-Man films. And so they, I think they get it. And so I'm hoping this does well enough that they make a, a two or three more films in this universe because I think it's worth exploring. And I think they've only tapped into the the mythology a little bit. And so, yeah, hmm. it's we'll fun. I, okay. I, I, and I think it's good for like kids. I think if you were to take your kids, they would have a great time. Like it's, it's a good family movie. If you think of it in those terms, like the best family movie, you'll have a good time. Yeah. Okay. Two family movies. Great. Two family movies. Who would what have thought we... that after the dark night? <laughs> yeah. oh, what a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, nice. Uh, we have another art spotlight this week. This is a trailer for another short film, um, that I just wrapped. It's called wax. It's a very personal story. That's all I'll say about it. Watch the trailer. It won't reveal anything. Um, you'll, you'll, have to maybe eventually i don't know if i'm ever releasing this publicly but if i do then cool uh you can watch it then but otherwise just get it it's really good it's really good it's, i will say it's intense um stay tuned next week we have a listener request from brockafine um i don't know that that's the real name <laughs> but brockafine someone, yeah, someone tracked me down they said they watched our episode love jones on youtube and tracked my 
uh, Instagram down, hit me in the DMs and said, hey, there's another Lorenz Tate movie I'd love for you to cover. It's called Menace to Society. So this is a 90s uh, film. It's a black film by the Hughes Brothers who I love. Uh, maybe we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that more next week. So yeah, I think it's streaming right now on HBO uh, or what's soon to be called Max. I don't know. That's This is not a smart move, HBO Max people. HBO is like, prestigious <laughs> what don't yeah don't they're throw just changing it to max they're just changing it to max so that's stupid well done um maybe it's uh, uh it goes away so that it can come back later maybe it's one of those things <laughs> uh but yeah you can you can stream in society there uh probably a number of other places yeah and if you're enjoying the show don't forget subscribe drop us a review leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about let us know what it be and if you want to drop a note on this episode tell us why you love hate the voice <laughs> then you can you can go to uh, you can drop a note on this episode at thepostalpodcast.com slash the dark knight <laughs> swear to me do something in post i don't know it drives me crazy uh all right and our quote of the day is from frederick bastiat is that how you pronounce that it is how you pronounce that Sweet. I love it. Uh, this is a good one. When law and morality contradict each other, the citizen has the cruel alternative of either losing his moral sense or losing his respect for the law. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I, I, I also put it, um, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a question that's raised a lot in films about, you know, like the military, you know, um, soldiers in the military who are given orders to do really difficult, terrible things and have to make that decision of, do I obey this order, which I have been, which I have been, it's been ingrained in me, it's been beaten into me and maybe sometimes physically, or do I, you know, keep my morality and refuse and get in trouble? You know, like I, it's a terrible, terrible alternative to, to choose between. It is. I So Frederick Bastia is a French philosopher from the 1850s. He wrote uh, one of my favorite little booklets. Uh, it's really an essay. It's called The Law, and it's way ahead of its time. Um, and it's a very insightful conversation about the nature of law um, and where it comes from, why it exists, how do we execute it, what are the ways it gets perverted. And so I love just his – I was trying to figure out who do we want to hear from in context of this movie. And I think that's so well put, right? When law and morality contradict each other, whenever you can't have both, like you're talking about this moral injury that soldiers go through whenever they're tasked with don't stop for the kid in the road. That means you can either obey your order or not. Like I can take this child's life because I can't stop. Stopping might mean an ambush and the death of everyone around me, including myself. I can do that or I can kill a child. Um, the, what do you do, right? That's a moral injury. Um, and, and so him making us ask these questions as, as citizens, right? Um, when law and morality contradict each other, is it, is it lawful to send people to jail for drugs? I don't know, but that's the moral order of the day. Uh, therefore, it's the legal order of the day. Uh, the, the citizen has the cruel alter alternative to either lose his moral sense or lose respect for the law. We can't have both sometimes. And the citizens of Gotham, you know, are, are struggling with this because 
what is it? Is it is it better to let a hospital blow up and kill a bunch of innocent people, or is it better to take this man's life? I don't know, but we do know the law has let us down, and now we're having to figure out: do we break the law and save a hospital, or do we let a hospital explode? I love all these philosophical conundrums, um, which is what the Joker's so good at doing. Right? He's because he doesn't care about the results. Mm-hmm. He's the perfect, you know, arbiter of implementing these tests. Chaos. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and um, uh, Batman's choice to go, it reminds me of Batman's choice to go save Harvey Dent over saving Rachel. Uh, he's, he's just, he has the respect for the law. It felt like, if that was what it felt like. It felt like he was making that decision. Now, I also am a firm believer that the law is not always 100% moral uh, or, or fair and just. Um, and in, in those cases, I think that, that I personally feel that the citizen has the right in some cases to call that out right yeah. now, what they do with that, I don't know that that's a line in the sand that I'm not prepared to talk about on this podcast right. to be, to be honest, but just because it's a law does not mean that it is moral or just Absolutely. Um, in, in, in a lot of cases. And what fascinates me about Gotham as a construct is this bigger question of what does it mean? What does it take to create a moral and just society itself? Because right now, the bulk of Gotham is illicit, right? It's all these illegal uh, things happening with people and power doing it, um, compelling other people with power to do it. And how do you get to a place where in Austin, I can walk down the street at midnight and not really be worried for my safety. I can't say that about every single place in the world. Now I do think the world at large gets a weird look from America thinking that everything's danger. It's not, but there are certainly places that I would not walk, you know, in broad daylight, let alone at midnight, you know, around the world. I'm sorry if I'm, if you catch me at midnight walking down the streets of Mogadishu, you know, grab me and someone's going to beat some sense into me one way or another. Uh, It's just not a safe place to be. And how do you get from Gotham to modern day New York? Modern day New York's pretty good. Like I'm not saying it's the the perfect emblematic, you know, city of uh, law and order, but it's better than Gotham. I think we can all agree on, on that minimum, right? There's plenty of people walking the streets at night that aren't overly concerned about getting jumped. Uh, and so it's, it's w- at what point does the story we tell, and this is coming back to something we were talking about a few weeks ago, like our culture is a story that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves that it's good to be moral, that it's good to obey the law, that it's good to stay between the lines in traffic. And it's just because it's been ingrained in us. And the story of America has only gotten stronger over time. Abraham Lincoln wasn't that concerned with habeas corpus. He was much more like Batman than anyone today. Like he, he was okay with destroying the press by controlling the message. Like we have a lot of things that we love Lincoln for, uh, but he wasn't, he was okay with the things happening in, in, you know, the dark night. He was okay with suspending rights in order to justify the, the ends. Right. And, but yet over time, we've gotten more and more obsessed with our own mythology. And that's, I think for the better, we are obsessed with our first amendment, you know, right to free speech. I think that's a good thing. Like we should be obsessed with it uh, because the more, you know, and so I don't know, I, I just find Gotham interesting as 
a, a case study, you know, a thought experiment of how does one get Gotham to become overwhelmingly good instead of overwhelmingly bad? I don't know. I don't know what takes the sea change um, in order to make everything uh, suddenly click into place. But Gotham is at that place. Gotham is at a place where it's so overwhelmingly r- ridden with crime that even the justice system doesn't work. I don't know. It's it's yeah. cool. It's interesting to think about. I I certainly don't have any answers, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is you know I guess safe for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, the last thing I'll say, and I can't believe we've talked about this for an over an hour. We haven't brought up the uh, the amazing uh, uh, scene of the hospital exploding, and how that mistake is not a mistake. Oh, really? Highly planned. So this, I don't know. The when explosion, this, the, the, the not the, working was highly yeah, planned. Yeah. Okay. Highly planned and rehearsed. So the, the, the problem, and I was curious about this. I Googled it right before we went on. Okay, um, good. And so what happened was they wanted to be, get this shot, this crazy shot of an actor, Heath Ledger, walking out of the building and then destroying that building in one shot. And that's what happens. That's not like CG that Nolan doesn't, you know, do that. And so they also needed to make sure that it was safe. Right. And that it looked believable. And so they knew that they were going to have a pause, a break and the explosions that were happening as he's walking out and whenever he climbs into the bus. And so in order to create some kind of moment, they gave him like, and this might have been partly his idea of how do I execute this this break in the, the the action? Okay, well I'll just pretend that you know the thing isn't working. So they rehearsed that a number of times, like a lot, a lot, a lot, uh, because there's a camera move attached to that, um, and it's a big, big camera move. It's on a crane. Yeah. And so you have to execute it all flawlessly. And so yeah, highly rehearsed, and that's just good performance. That's just him. Like, oh, what do I do? And I love that he's in this nurse's outfit. It's just all silly and crazy and frenetic um yeah uh, so yeah okay because yeah i was watching it too and i was like how is this how is this like literally capturing magic in a bottle because then the movement after as everything's exploding and the and the the bus is driving off i'm like how was that done if it was a mistake planned because you yeah. don't just raise up a crane like that right just you know like oh now go 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 it just doesn't happen that quickly yeah so that's actually good to know and so that little pause gives him enough time to keep, keep walking out and at, get to the bus and then do the bit and then he sees it going and he kind of does a little startle like oh me yeah flops his hands out to the side like, flop, hmm? yeah it's <laughs> so good brilliant oh my gosh well thank you for explaining that putting that to rest so good oh man thank you guys all for joining uh uh, wes thank you for your uh, as always brilliant insight love it absolutely you uh hope you guys enjoyed this episode please leave us any kind of review subscribe all that stuff share us with your friends it all helps tremendously and join us next week uh we'll we'll be doing uh menace to society Uh, thanks for that uh that um suggestion there Brockafine. Uh, okay, until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.